Hello, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope you're having a fantastic uh, time um, as much as you can with uh, the, the restrictions as they are. Uh, but I pray that whatever you've been up to, however you spent your Christmas day and whatever you're doing now, I pray that you know the peace and the presence and the hope and the joy of Jesus uh, with you as we celebrate over this season him coming into the world. Now, today we're hanging out in the book of Hosea. If you've been following through in our daily Bible readings, then you will know that we finished Hosea uh, a kind of week or so ago. But we don't want to skip out any book of the Bible. We want to make sure that there's a preach on it, at least one on and each book. So we're going to do this one on Hosea. And then in January on the first Sunday, we're going to do a, a week uh, on Micah. And then we'll get into the Proverbs. So um, a little bit of background for you then on the book of Hosea. Hosea is writing at the same time uh, as Isaiah and Micah. So these three guys, they're all looking at the same situation, maybe from slightly different angles, but they're all looking at the same story and they're speaking God's word into the same situation to the same people at the same time. So there's a little bit of context there for you. Now, now, let me just tell you about the story of Hosea. Now, Hosea is this guy. He is a prophet. He's anointed by God uh, to, to speak to God's people. And God says to Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to marry an adulterous woman, a, a prostitute. I want you to marry this woman who, whose life uh, is in question when it comes to, to the sexuality of her life and how she's engaging with that. Um, and sometimes prophets, they would, they would go to God's people and they would speak, this is what God is saying to you. But other times they would do crazy things, like act out what God was wanting to say. So not just the words, but a visual representation of stuff that was going on. You see it with some of the other prophets. Some of them did these crazy things like spending time walking around the city naked, exposing themselves like Israel was exposed by her sin and doing all kinds of other crazy things as well. And so Hosea is called by God to marry this adulterous woman. And, and he marries a woman called uh, Gomer. And she is the daughter of Diblaim. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about her name, because this I find absolutely fascinating. Her name, Gomer, it means complete. Okay, so he's marrying this woman who, whose name means complete. And she is the daughter of Diblaim. And in, and in Hebrew, Diblaim, it, it means a cluster of figs. Now, you might think, well, well what, is, what is the significance of her name meaning a complete cluster of figs? Uh, but figs in the uh, Israelite world were symbolic of Israel themselves. You might remember the story of Jesus walking into Jerusalem one day and cursing a fig tree. And then on his way back out, the disciples notice that it's withered. Um, and actually, he's not just being mean to that tree. It is a prophetic, symbolic act. He's saying, you haven't produced any fruit. Curse you. And actually, what he's doing is, is it's like he's standing outside Jerusalem and burning the flag of the, of the, of the Jewish leaders at the time. It's this prophetic, bold statement. And so figs, fig trees were often symbolic of Israel and their leadership. And so Micah, uh, sorry, Hosea, he marries this woman called Goma Diblaim, uh, the daughter of Diblaim. And so she is the complete daughter of Israel. She is the complete representation of Israel. So when Micah marries her, 
Everybody's looking at this situation and they're seeing what she is like, that she is unfaithful to him, that she is uh, kind of doing all kinds of questionable sexual things with her life. And then they recognize that her name means that she is the complete representation of Israel itself. And it is this powerful, powerful image that God is using Hosea to say to his people, do you not see this is what you are like? I am like this lover to you and you are being unfaithful to me. Well, the story it goes on, uh, and she is unfaithful to, to Hosea. And God says to him, I want you to go to her, and I want you to redeem her. I want you to buy her back from the people that she's prostituted herself to. And so Hosea does. He goes, and he buys her back. And it's this beautiful, beautiful image of what God is like with his people. They may, they may have uh, abandoned him, cheated on him, run off with other gods into other ways of life. But he has not given up pursuing them. And he is going to redeem them and buy them back. That, in a nutshell, is the story of Hosea. Now, I want to just focus in on a couple of verses. So if you grab your Bible, and we're going to read together Hosea chapter 2, verses 13 down to 20. Here we go. It says this, this is Hosea speaking the words of God to his people. He says this, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. Her is, is Israel. That's who he's talking about here. I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. That sounds just like Genesis, right? When humanity lived in this perfect time with everything around it. God's going to restore all of that. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. There's going to be peace. There's going to be shalom. Again, this restoration of Eden so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord Wow. Now, I want to just focus in for a moment just on one word in that passage. Because I don't know if you spotted this, right? But at the start there, we were reading verse 13. And verse 13 is this verse that comes at the end of this other section, which says much the same as verse 13. I don't want to read the whole of it because we haven't got time. But verse 13, basically God's saying, I'm going to punish her. I'm going to punish her for all that she has done. 
And then we get into verse 14, and it says, therefore, and then it goes off into, I'm going to allure her into the wilderness. I'm going to restore her vineyards to her. I'm going to turn the valley of Accor, which means trouble, the valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. And you think, what is going on? Hang on, one minute he's going to punish her, and the next minute he's, he's going to do these amazing things to her. And, and you start to think, has God just lost it? Did he just have a, a freak out and suddenly everything changed? He had this brain transplant and now he's being totally different, like personality transplant of the year. What is going on? Um, and I want to just focus on that one word for a moment, the therefore. I love a therefore in the Bible. Whenever you get to a therefore, wake up and pay attention. Because therefore, when you, when you see it in the Bible, it means that something is going on here. Something is going on. Now, many scholars have noticed how abrupt the transition is from verse 13 to verse 14. And because of that, many scholars have tried to say, actually, therefore, it isn't the right translation of that word. Probably what that word should be translated as is after that. So I'm going to punish them, and then after that, I'm going to be really nice to her. Um, or uh, it should be translated as something like nevertheless. I'm going to do this, but nevertheless, eventually this is what will happen. Now, you could go down that line of thinking. Lots of people have. They try to explain it like that. But the reality is, is that nowhere else in the scriptures is that word translated like that. It is therefore. That's what it means. It means this is what I'm going to do. And because of this, it's going to look like this. This is intrinsically linked to this. This is happening. Therefore, that is what it will look like. It's going to be like this. And what I want to say to you today is this, that there is clearly a connection between verse 13 and verse 14 to 20. There's definitely something going on there. And the therefore connects the two. It connects God's judgment and his mercy. They are intrinsically linked, his judgment and his mercy. You cannot separate the two of them. This therefore word, it binds them together. So, um, you might be thinking, well, how, Matt? Like, how on earth does it bind them together? What on earth is that about? Let me just um, take you to a couple of other verses in the Bible. So, Psalm 103, verse 10, there's this incredible verse, and it says this, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. How do you know what something is deserving of. Well, you need to judge the situation first, right? And then out of the judgment, out of the kind of, this is what's going on here, then you can decide what happens. Then you can decide what happens. That's what a judge is all about. A judge is about um, analyzing all the information and making a judgment on what has happened. When you've done something, you get your day in court and the judge listens to what has happened, all sides, the for and against. And then they go, okay, I've heard everything and I judge that this is what happened now. This is what will happen because of that. And, and that's what's partly going on here. God's judging the situation. But guess what? He is a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. In Isaiah 55 verse 8, we read this so much recently. But his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. They are high above. He doesn't do things the way that we do. We instantly read stuff and we go, boom, judgment. And we think it's all going to be terrible. Actually, God goes, yeah, I'm judging that. Therefore, look what I'm going to do. Look what I am going to do. In Psalm 9, uh, we read about God who is seated on his throne to bring judgment. And in the same breath, 
We read about the God who is a refuge for those in need, for the oppressed. It's all connected. It's all one of the same thing, his judgment and his mercy. For those who hope in him, for those who trust in him, for those who hide in him, his judgment is his mercy. They are one of the same thing. How? How are they one of the same thing? Well, let's read through verses 14 to 20 and just pick out a few things that might help us understand. So one of the first things that God says is that he's going to uh, allure her. Um, And the word in the Hebrew is pothor. And and quite literally, it means uh, uh, to, to, to open wide. The root word of pothor means to open wide. Now, it can be translated as allure. It can be translated as deceive. It can be translated as to enlarge or or to entice or to flatter. You start to get this image building up of what this word means. And so maybe a better way of translating that verse, verse 14, where it says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. It might be to say this, like God is saying, I'm going to open wide the way for her into the wilderness. Now, I, I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear those words, I start thinking about the language of the, of, of the exodus. I'm going to open wide a way into the wilderness. What did God do with them in the Exodus? He parted the Red Sea, opened wide the way for them to go into the wilderness. And what did he do with them in the wilderness? Well, the wilderness was where he, he shaped them and he grew them and he taught them how to be his people. And if you jump to Hosea chapter 11, I love this chapter. But as you read through this chapter, It says this, God speaking, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it. It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Like you see that what was going on in the wilderness as God called them out was, was God uh, teaching them to be uh, his, his children. And he was walking with them, teaching them to walk, holding them near, nourishing them. Uh, Israel had become like Egypt. And, and God had got them out of Egypt once before. And now, now he was getting them out of Egypt again. Only the place he was getting them out of was Israel. Because Israel had become the new Egypt. They'd gone off after all kinds of other gods. And so he was going to open wide the way for them to go into the wilderness. Back into the place where he could teach them how to be his people again. And sure enough, in 722 BC... The Israelites, they got carried off by the Assyrians. And if you go Google a map of, of, of where Israel was and where Assyria was, the journey is just this massive journey through the wilderness. That's the journey they got taken on. Okay, so the first thing we see is that God's judgment, it, it, I'm going to deal with this, he says. I'm going to part the sea and I'm going to set them free. I'm going to open wide away and lead them into the wilderness where I can teach them how to be all that they could be again. It goes on, he says, that he's going to speak tenderly to her. 
Well, if you jump to the book of Ezekiel, there you see Ezekiel, who's this other prophet. And he's given a scroll and he's told, eat the scroll. What's on the scroll? The words of God. He's going to speak to him. Eat the scroll. And he eats the scroll and he says, it tasted sweet as honey on my lips. God spoke tenderly to Ezekiel. Do you know where Ezekiel was? In captivity. In captivity. And God spoke uh, tenderly to him there. It, it goes on and um, he says here that I'll give her back her vineyards. Um, if you jump to Jeremiah 29 verses 4 and 6, you'll read there that God's saying, hey, yeah, I'm taking you into captivity. But when you are there, marry, have children, work, plant vineyards, live, be alive. And so God's saying, yeah, I'm carrying you out of Israel into somewhere else. But in that place, I'm going to provide for you. In that place, you're going to be alive. I'm going to plant vineyards for you. And he goes on and says uh, about the valley of Accor will become the door of hope. Well, the word Accor, it literally means trouble. And God's saying, isn't he, like in the valley of trouble, well, a valley is like one of the lowest places. Not up on the mountaintop, in the pit. In, in the pit of trouble, I'm going to turn that into a door of hope. In that very place, you will find me. You will find life and hope and peace and joy. I'm going to turn the pit of trouble into a door of hope. If you go down to, to verse um, 17, God says, I will remove, I will remove the names of the bows. Yes, I'm going to remove this stuff. All the stuff that's wrong, I'm going to remove it. All the trouble, I'm going to remove it. All the sin, I'm going to remove it. It, it is there in captivity as they're carried off that God can deal with the root of the problem. It's there that the root of the problem can be seen. It's there that God can deal with the root of the problem. And what was the problem? Okay, so as you get to the problem, let's jump to the last verse that we read, verse 20. It says here, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. As we're reading through these passages, you start to notice that they hadn't been acknowledging God. They've been acknowledging the Baals, other gods, other ways of living, not the way of Yahweh. And God says, you haven't acknowledged me. And this is the root of the problem. And this word, it comes up again and again and again in these scriptures. If you look to Hosea chapter 4, uh, verse 6, it says this. It says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. The same word in the Hebrew there. In chapter 5, verse 4, it says this. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. And the Hebrew word for acknowledge is the word yada, yada. And it literally means not to know about, it means to intimately know. There's a big difference between the Hebrew word for just to know, to know facts about something, and to yada, someone, to intimately know them. Yada, that word that is used there where God says, you don't yada me, and that is the problem. That word is the same word used in Genesis, when God, in the scriptures, when it says that Adam Yadad, his wife. Adam knew his wife. Adam, in some translations, made love to his wife. Yadah. And God says that is the problem. 
And because they haven't yadad God, they've gone off with other gods. It says this in chapter 4, uh, verse 7. Uh, the more priests there were, and you think that should be a good thing, right? The more priests there were, the more, the more they could worship, the more they could draw near to God. Priests should have been a good thing. But it says, the more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. Now, those words are really similar to something else in the Bible. You jump to Romans chapter 1, verse 23. It says this, chapter uh, verse 22, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged what they could have had with God for all kinds of other things. And and so in Hosea chapter 2 verse 13, God saying, yes, I will deal with it. I'm going to deal with this stuff. I will judge the situation and therefore, verse 14, I will show them mercy. I will lead them out into the wide open space. Romans starts in the same way. The book of Romans, it starts by saying, here's the judgment on the situation. Everything's gone to pot. Even though God can be seen in the world, people have chosen to turn against him and to exchange him for other things. But as the book of Romans goes on, it gets so exciting and it talks about Jesus. And, and, and it basically, it starts off with this judgment and says, and here's God's judgment. He's going to send Jesus. He's going to show mercy. He's going to create a way to go into the wild open space we talked in the carol service about how the name of Jesus Yeshua it literally means Yahweh God saves the Hebrew word uh, for that Yahweh Yasha Yahweh Yasha God saves Yasha in the Hebrew the word for salvation it literally means to be led into the wide open space it is through Jesus that we are led into the wide open space And so Hosea chapter 3, God says, go, go and buy uh, Goma back. Go and redeem her uh, because this is what I'm going to do with my people. He has judged the situation and now he's going to show mercy. His judgment is to show them mercy. Let me wrap up by asking you this. Where has God led you? Is, is it so that you might find him? Has he led you into an awkward place? Do you feel like you're in some strange place, led out of your comfort zone? But has he led you there so that you might find him, so that you might call on him, so that you might discover his provision? He might plant vineyards in your life. Is it so that you can be free of all the distractions that have been in the way of your relationship with God? You know, sometimes we need to be in a different place to the place where we're comfortable to really know God again. Sometimes God gives us everything and it's all great, but our lives become like Egypt, like Israel became like Egypt. And we lose sight of God who gave us all that we had. And so God moves us somewhere else so that we might discover him again. All that Jesus has done is so that we might know the Father. In John, he says this, I've come that you might have eternal life. And he says, and this, this is eternal life, that you might know the Father. You see, that's what it's all about. Life in all its fullest is about knowing God. It's yada, 
is to know him intimately. And that is what Jesus came for, to lead us into the wide open space where we might yada the Father and know him intimately, to be with him. You know, we're having to socially distance from one another. But one thing we don't have to do is socially distance from our God. And I wonder what you've been doing over 2020. I wonder as we draw to the end of this year, have you got so into the habit of socially distancing that you've started to socially distance with God himself? You don't need to do that. You can get out your Bible. You can sit in the quiet and you can invite his spirit to come. You can worship him. You can draw near to him. You can be with him. Uh, Whatever you're going through in this season, uh, the difference between it feeling like being dragged off or being set free, the difference between it feeling like being a captive or finally being able to live, the difference between it feeling like you're being judged or like you're being shown mercy is whether or not you know him. It is whether or not you take refuge in him. It is whether or not you trust in him. It is whether or not you yada him. And so I want to wrap up this year by saying this to you. Be with him. That is what changes everything. His presence is what changes everything. His presence is what leads to his provision. Maybe you've been caught up in all kinds of things. But there's an invite as we end 2020 and step into 2021 to be 